Well, let's open our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. Pick up where we left off last week. We'll pick up with verse 8. Verses seven, uh, 1 through 7 were kind of an introduction, kind of given a, a purpose for the book of Proverbs. So today we'll pick up with verse 8 and go through the end of the chapter, verse 33. Allow me to read this passage. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 33. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as they go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will find our houses, uh, fill our houses with spoils. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your, pa- your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates of the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you, and I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof, so they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. So we look here, and what we're basically saying is godly wisdom shared from a godly father perspective. Look at verses 8 through 10, and we see this. Hear my son, your father's instructions, and do not forsake your mother's teachings. Indeed, they are graceful wreaths to the head and ornaments about the neck. My son, if if sinners entice you, do not consent. So we look and we see Solomon acting as a godly father. Now Solomon was godly at times and other times he was kind of worldly. Uh, but here he is portraying his teachings, these words of wisdom, as coming from a godly father. And also from a godly mother. Now what a difference it would make in the world if all parents, uh, fathers and mothers, Train their children 
in godly ways. Uh, Solomon here illustrates uh, a godly father and a godly mother giving instructions to their sons or children, but not everybody does that, unfortunately. But he describes the words of wisdom uh, in kind of a picturesque form. He says, they are like graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. In other words, wisdom should be seen as a result of our relationship with the Lord. Our wisdom should be openly, you know, cherished. So it would be like a, a wreath on your head, an ornament, you know, or a necklace or something like that about your neck. So people, it should not be something that you try to hide. It should be something that is present for others to see and understand that, that you have this wisdom. So in other words, wisdom is not an inner knowledge that's hidden. It is something that should be evident in the way we, we live our lives. And it says, they also share godly wisdom, these godly parents do, in how to live unto the Lord. So a godly parent is going to give warnings about the paths not to follow. Do not follow the paths of unrighteousness. And that begins basically with verse 11. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait. So if sinners entice you, basically what uh, the godly parents are saying is, do not consent. Don't follow the paths of, the ease, uh, of these people. But we will all be enticed. That's, that's the nature. And so godly parents have a responsibility to train their children and to give them the, the wisdom of the Lord where it will be lived out in their lives, where it won't be something hidden. And the warning is, when enticement comes, and it will come, do not consent to it. And so then he goes into the warnings against the temptations, verses 11 through 14. If they say, come with us, lie, let, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as they go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will find our, fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us, and we shall all have one purse. So, first of all, we see Solomon kind of playing the role model, uh, or playing the role of the tempter and saying, here's what you're going to be confronted with. And we are all confronted to some degree. If they say, they is a group. And so basically, we immediately see that um, there is this invitation to join the evil. And the, the invitation is, come with us. Now, come with us basically is peer pressure. It's the groups saying, if you want to be a part of the cool gang, if you want to be a part of those who are making a difference in this community, then you need to be a part of us. That's why gang activity is so prominent. Number one, very few of those who join gangs have a strong father figure at home. That's just a stereotype, but it's also factual. Statistics show that very few of those who get involved in gangs have a strong or even any male figure in their life at home. And so the peer pressure is, we will be your family. We will be who you will belong to. And so come with us is the peer pressure. And then, sounds pretty gross, but they're being very honest with what they're planning to do. They're planning to do outright evil. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. That's just pure evil intent. 
They plan to attack others for no other reason than to gain what they have for themselves. It's not like it's revenge. It's not like they've done something wrong to, our, to us so we're going to do something evil to them, even take their lives. The whole purpose of, of taking another life is to gain what that person has. So they're attacking for no other reason than to fulfill their own desire of evil. Then it says, let, let us send them to Sheol or the place of the dead. In other words, let's kill them and plant them in the ground. You know, Sheol was basically the picture of where the dead go before the resurrection. And so they're showing uh, that they truly intend harm and they intend to commit murder. And what's the purpose for these evil deeds, for murder? It's basically so that they can take the possessions of those that they kill. Why would they kill them instead of just steal? If you steal something from someone, they can come after you with a court of law. They can charge you. They can get you know, the authorities involved, and they could have you arrested. But if you kill them and take what is there, there's no longer anybody who can take recourse. Actually, there is in the Hebrew uh, laws, there are ways that the family can take vengeance. But basically what they're looking at is, here's an easy way to gain resources, to gain wealth. Let's just kill people and take what they have. And that's exactly what it says. We will find all kinds of precious wealth, and we will fill our houses with spoils. And so they're, they're just very open-minded about what they plan to do. And here's what they were wanting to do. They're wanting more and more people to join their gang, to join their group. And why? Well, more people doing the wrong thing makes people think, well, it must not be wrong. If everybody's doing it, it must be okay. And so it's kind of that peer pressure, group mentality that they're uh, looking at. And again, verse 14 kind of finalizes it. Throw your lot in with us and we will have one purse. If you join us and you help us to gain even more wealth, we put it all in one pot and we split it equally. And so you're going to get rich as well. And so what, what's the last of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not covet. You shall not want or desire what does not belong to you. What is your neighbor's, whether it's their, their lamb, whether it's their wife, whether it's their whoever it may be, whatever it may be, we are not to covet. We should not desire that which is not ours. And so we look at verses 15 through 19, and Solomon gives us really three ways to protect ourselves from these temptations. 15 through 19 says, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So, so are the ways of anyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. So here Solomon is basically saying, here are the consequences if you join these. Here's what's happening to those who, who, who treat others this way, who take their lives. First of all, it explains the path that you're following. Do not follow the path of those who desire to do evil. Instead, keep your feet on the correct path, on the, on the path that it's meant to be. And Jesus 
when he was sharing the, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, in the latter part, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the, way, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Matches perfectly, doesn't it? The large group are following the wide path that leads to destruction. And Solomon is saying, do not follow that path. Keep your feet from it. That's what verse 15 says. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. Stay on the narrow path instead of the wide path. Unfortunately, Christians today are not real careful about examining what path they're following. Uh, so we need to take this same advice and don't allow ourselves to, to associate with the wrong crowd or soon we'll be finding ourselves doing the wrong things. So the second way to overcome temptation is to avoid playing with temptation. And basically he says, you know, for their feet run towards evil and they hasten uh, shed blood indeed. It is useless to spread the baited net in sight of any bird. So there are a lot of people that think, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm immune to temptation. I can play with it. I can, I can dabble in it. But it won't take control of me. Well, those are final, you know, terrible last words to say because it will take control of you. Temptation is nothing to dabble in. We need to avoid playing with it. But some are truly foolish enough to believe that they can stand the temptation and dabble with it. Uh, but it's like the birds. A bird is smart enough to know, here's a net that's got bait in it. And I see the person hanging it up in the tree. Am I stupid enough to fly into that net and get caught? Well, that's what the author, Solomon, is saying. Don't be so stupid. The net is there. It is temptation. It is baited. It is going to snare you. You know it's there, so don't fly into it. So, in other words, don't play with temptation. And so, we're supposed to be smarter than birds. So we need to understand that God wants us to stay away from temptation. Then the third way to overcome the temptation is to understand that those who fall into, uh, fall into temptation fall into their own snares and traps. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, son, listen, those who you think are making a lot of money by robbing and stealing and killing, here's what's going to happen to them. Picking up verse 18 and 19. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. So those who are stealing, those who are committing murder, those who are possessing the, 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 the loot that they take, they're killing themselves. Not necessarily physically, but spiritually. They are losing eternal life and gaining eternal death. And so if you fall into temptation, the price that you'll pay is always higher than what you hope to gain. You end up sacrificing the permanent, eternal life for the temporal or temporary life uh, that you are hoping for. You surrender eternal life for basically physical gains for the moment. Well, 
that's basically what Jesus, Paul, and others throughout the New Testament talk about. You know, do you want the gains? Do you want the wealth and the popularity now that's short-lived and it can be taken away from you at any moment? Or do you want to make your riches in heaven? Do you want eternal life? Do you want something that cannot be taken from you? Then he picks up verses uh, really 22 through the rest of the chapter, a voice of, of wisdom. And notice he uses the word she. He's personifying what wisdom is. He's basically giving wisdom a voice. And kind of to take away from his voice being the father, he's saying wisdom is a she, kind of distinguishing between the two. And so he is depicting or personifying wisdom as a woman and calls her she. Wisdom doesn't tempt uh, from the shadows, but it shouts openly from the streets. We all see these, you know, things where, you know, somebody's on the side of the street, go, psst, psst, over here. You know, I've got something for you. You know, they do it secretively. They do it in a dark alley. They do it behind, in the darkness. They do it in hiding. But wisdom doesn't do that. Wisdom shouts wisdom from the streets. It is open for all to hear. Basically, it says, you know, that she shouts in the street. She lifts her upper voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. All the entrances of the gates in the city, she, she utters her sayings. So, wisdom is not something hidden. It is something openly available for any who will be willing to listen. But then, she, wisdom, addresses three different types of people. We see the naive or the ignorant. We see the scorners or mockers. And the fools or the rejecters of truth. She, she says, how long, naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? Now, I had to do a little study to see what is this really talking about. It's basically those who are naive who are basically going through life as if nothing really matters. If, if this was the New Testament, they'd basically be saying, you know doesn't matter if I believe or don't believe in Jesus. If I believe in him, that's fine. If I don't believe in him, that's fine. He really doesn't have anything to do with me. You know, Jesus really is immaterial to me. Not, a, not necessarily. There's, there's a lot of people that are what we call agnostic, which means they believe in God, but they don't believe that he has a true effect on them. And so they basically would say, I'm doing fine without Jesus. Why do I need him? And so... <laughs> I, I said, it's kind of like walking around through life with a blank stare, like nothing really matters. Naive, just un, unwilling to accept that there's something greater than you in the world. And unfortunately, this is how a lot of people approach Jesus. They, they've heard about Jesus. They probably have attended church. They may have gone to vacation Bible school and heard about Jesus and his saving grace. But they don't see it as being a big deal to them. Why should I devote myself to this man named Jesus? Why should I worship him? Why should I go to church every Sunday? Why should I give tithes? Why should I do all these things when I'm doing fine on my own? And that's really the naive you know, way of looking at it. Then we have, here have the scoffers. Instead of having a blank look, they have a sneer on their face. A scoffer is basically saying, I reject that wisdom. I don't like it. It's not for me. 
Yes, I hear your wisdom, but I see it as a controlling factor. I don't want to be controlled by anybody. So just get away. Just stay away. So the, the scoffers really have more of a sneer on their face instead of a blank look. And so they reject wisdom because they don't want anything to control them. They want to be free to follow the desires of their own hearts. And then the third group are the fools, and they are represented as those who hate wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge is available, but they don't want it. Again, they don't want anybody telling them what's right or wrong. They don't want to read the Bible that might convict them of the sins in their lives. Um, they don't want anyone or anything to object to how they live. We, we hear of alternative lifestyles in the news. You know, they don't call it sin anymore. It's just an alternative lifestyle. And those who are living these alternative lifestyles, they look at Christians and say, well, we're hate speech. We hate people because we disagree with their way of life. And that's what the fools are doing. They're basically saying, if you disagree with me, then you've got the problem, not me. I don't want anybody to tell me whether I'm right or wrong. For me, the way I'm living is right. If the way you live is good for you, then that's right for you. But don't put your values and stick them on me. And I won't put my values and stick them on you. That's usually not the case. They always want their values to be accepted while they reject ours. So then we hear wisdom calling out for us all to listen to her words of reproof and correction. And that's what God does. When he sees us going astray, he shows us the wrong of our lives. The Holy Spirit that lives in us as Christians corrects us, reproves us, shows us the, the wrong in our lives. And when we feel that conviction, it is our responsibility to repent Confess our sins, allow him to forgive us and cleanse us and restore us into a right relationship. So we must understand that we as sinners are without, uh, and, with, and without godly wisdom, we'll always follow the path of the naive scoffers and fools. But if we turn from our evil ways, and that's what God definitely desires us to do, wisdom will replace the guilt with God's spirit of forgiveness. She will teach us her truths, her words, and they will be known to us and they will remain in our hearts forever. So then wisdom describes those who ignore her calling. And the latter part of this book is a pitiful, pitiful reproof. I have called you, but you refused. I stretched out my hand and you ignored me. You neglected, ignored my wise counsel. You rejected my reproof or my correction. So wisdom has been calling out through the streets. Wisdom is open for all to hear. But she is saying, I've called out to you, but you've refused to listen. I've stretched out my hand in mercy and ministry, and you've ignored me. You neglect any words of wisdom or wise counsel, and you rejected any reproof or correction. What happens? She says, Now I, wisdom, will laugh and mock you when calamity comes to you, when dread comes, and it will come sooner or later. Wisdom knows that when calamity, distress, all come, 
that when it comes, they will call out. They will cry for help. And she will reject, her, reject them because they have rejected her, even though the evil cry out for help. Here's the picture. Is it too late? Well, only God knows that. We'll get to that in just a minute. For many, it is already too late. For their whole life, they've rejected wisdom. They've rejected the ways of God. They openly did not fear God. And that's what the scriptures tell us here. And so because they refused to fear God, because they refused to listen to to God's wise counsel, because they refused to uh, respond to the reproof and correction from God, they're finally going to get there in just... They're going to be facing calamity and trials and distress in their lives. And then they'll cry out. But wisdom says, I'm not going to answer. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to help you. And so the reason why is because they've already ignored, they've already rejected, they've already spurned the words of correction and guidance. Now they'll eat the fruit of their own ways. They will reap what they have sown. The waywardness of the naive will kill them. The complacency of the fools will destroy them. This describes the hard-heartedness of those who live lives in rejection to God's calling upon their lives. To follow, uh, they refuse to follow the narrow path that leads to salvation and choose, they choose the wide path that leads to destruction. So the question is, is there any hope for these? And that's the question. What happens when the evil finally cry out for help? Well, we're not God, thank goodness. Only God knows their heart. Only God knows if it is in the heart of man to truly repent and desire to turn their life over to the Lord and surrender and to receive his grace and mercy. But for most, when they get into the calamities, God is there 911. I need help. I need it right now. God, you're the only one that can help me. Help me. Well, all they want is a quick, easy rescue out of their calamity. They're not wanting to change their life. They just want to get out of the problem that they're in. And so, what, what's it called? Uh, uh, foxhole confessions? Uh, you know, people in war, they're, they're being bombed. They're being shot at. And they haven't ever darkened the door of a church. But they say, Lord, if you'll get me out of this, I'll, I'll, I'll surrender my life to you. I'll go to church. I'll give tithes. I'll do all these good things. And then if they survive that day, they're right back to the way, way they were. And so that's, that's what God sees so much. He knows their hearts. He knows that for most, their cries are just for temporary help. Get me out of this. I'll, I'll promise you anything, but I'm not going to keep my promise. I'll just go right back to my evil ways. But if God does hear a true repentant heart, then he will hear their prayers and he will answer them. But unfortunately, I think it's a rare case for that to happen. But we do have this promise in verse 39. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. If we listen to God's words of wisdom, if we allow him to be the guiding force of our lives, if we listen and obey, then he will, first of all, provide 
security. That's eternal life. And says that we will be at ease from the dread of evil. Now, evil's still going to be around us. We are going to be affected by evil. But we must always know that God has defeated evil. And that our eternity is secure. And that even when we face evil here, the outcome is in God's hands. And so we need to rest assured that God is in control. Let's close with prayer then. Lord, we are so thankful that we have these words of wisdom. And Lord, unfortunately, we sometimes see ourselves in the mirror where we're not listening to your wisdom. We're not following the paths that lead uh, to life everlasting. Sometimes, Lord, we do give in to peer pressure. We do follow the crowd because it's so easy to do. And Lord, it's so expected from others. So Lord, be our strength. Grant us all that we need to stand firm in our faith, to reject any temptation that would lead us astray. But Lord, help us to live in such a way that we will receive that eternal reward for our faithfulness. Guide us each and every day. Keep us on the right path. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.